So we are on Blessed Are the Meek uh, this week. We've kind of walked through the first of the Beatitudes. We're talking about the way of Jesus and lessons from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount for a very, very long time. Uh, and so if you're excited about sitting and dwelling in a text, boy, do we have the right series for you, because we're going to be here for about a year uh, walking through the Sermon on the Mount. And what we're doing right now is walking through the front end of that Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of the pictures of the Beatitudes, the blesseds that Jesus proclaims. And I, I want you to understand this. I want you to imagine Jesus has come. He's starting to get victory. People are seeing he's doing the miraculous. He's seeing breakthrough. Amazing things are happening. He's preaching with a new level of authority and power, and he's drawing these crowds together. But these crowds still believe that Jesus has come in power to take over. They still believe that Jesus is going to somehow overthrow the government by leading some sort of rebellion. And so there's all of these people that are gathered together to hear this rebel, this potential savior, this person who's going to rescue them from the power and the authority of the empire and of, of, of the authority of Rome and, and of what's happening in all of the different areas. And, and they want to hear Jesus talk about how he's going to fight and instead, Jesus starts by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the mourners, blessed are the meek. And I imagine in that crowd, there's some dude that's like, come on, Jesus. Like, I don't want to hear this. I want to hear about how we win. I want to hear about how we take over. I want to hear about how we become courageous. But I want to tell you this. I don't know that there's a more courageous virtue than gentleness especially in a world that doesn't exhibit gentleness. I don't know that there's a more important idea or ideology for us to understand right now than resisting the impulse to overcome our anger and our frustration with vengeance. I don't know if there's something more important for us to know than just to teach, learning how to hold our tongue and how to know when to speak and when to be silent, to keep doing what's right when no one else is following. In a world where the strong win and the stronger you get, the more victories you have, Jesus says, there's a different way. Dallas Willard, who's one of my favorite theologians and kind of one of my heroes, said this. He said, you need to practice the art of not getting the last word. I say this to my kids all the time. You're not practicing very well. <laughs> the art of not getting the last word. And, and I have been for... The last, let's see, for the last 25 years, I've been a basketball coach. Uh, and can I just tell you, my biggest struggle in getting the last word is with the people that wear stripes. It's with referees. Are you with me? They don't know what they're doing. They don't. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know the rules as well as they think they do. They, they're always getting it wrong, and I'm always coaching, and I'm trying to coach in such a way that I'm exhibiting the spirit and the heart of Jesus for my students and the kids that I coach, but also in a way that helps us to win the game. I want to win. Are you with me? Like, I, I, I don't like losing games. I want to win every game that we play in. And so I, I, this, 
a few years ago, about, it was about 15 years ago, I was coaching with a friend. His name's Maurice Jackson. Uh, amazing, amazing guy. Really, really funny. He was an incredible basketball player. His brother played in the NBA. And, and, and Mo was my assistant coach, and we were coaching this AAU team, and it was this incredible AAU team. Like We, had, we lived in Indianapolis at the time, and we had gathered this group of boys. They were eighth grade boys, and my front line was six, eight, two six eight kids and a six foot ten kid in eighth grade. So we were good. We were very good. All we had to do was just tell them to stand like this, and we were good. Uh, and, and so we were competing kind of all across the board, winning tournaments, doing great. We ended up winning a national tournament, doing really, really well. Uh, but we, we, we got, got in this one tournament, and it was, this, it was the finals. It was the final game, and for some reason, the ref just had it out for us. I don't know if you've ever watched a sporting event where you're like, I don't know what's happening here, but it seems like every call is going the wrong way. Uh, and Moat was a little feistier than I was. Uh, and, and here's the way refs work, especially in basketball. I don't know much about other sports, but in basketball, the head coach can kind of get in the ref's ear quite a bit, and the, and the ref's okay with that, but the assistant coaches can't. Right? They don't like it when there's like five people yelling him at the bench. They're, I think they tolerate one person yelling at them on the bench. And so Mo was getting really loud, and the ref finally came over, and he said, you, right there, pointed at him, Mo, you need to sit in your seat, and I don't want to hear another word from you again. He teched him up, and if I hear you say another word, I don't want to hear your voice. If you're coaching your kids, whisper. I don't want to hear your voice again. If I hear your voice, you will get a technical foul. And Mo just kind of sat there and kind of giggled about it. And, and uh, I saw him pick up his, like, he had one of these things. And it's, uh, it's, this is where we draw plays, right? So we'll call a timeout. We'll do some X and O's on this. And I saw Mo go and pick up his. He picked up his marker. And he wrote the word foul with a bunch of exclamation points on his, on his board. And then the next trip down, when the ref didn't call a foul, when one of our guys got hammered, he just went like this. <laughs> and the ref, the ref instantly kicked him out of the game. <laughs> and I, this was my defense of it. This is what I said. I said, you can't kick him out of the game for that. That's funny. Right? I don't care. Like you're gonna, you're gonna hang out later tonight and you're gonna cool down from this and you're gonna think that was actually funny. I shouldn't have kicked him out of the game. You're making a mistake right now because you shouldn't get kicked out of the game for doing something as funny as that. Uh, he didn't think it was funny and I don't, we lost the game and my assistant coach got tossed and they shot free throws and all of those different things. But in a world where it's always getting in the last word that matters. I don't know if you guys are like that. I'm, I wanna win arguments. I want to win debates, and there's so many things about meekness that are so hard. I feel like maturity for me, 90% of the time, maturity for me is not speaking. Are you with me? Like 90% of the time, me being mature means I don't say what's actually in my heart. I don't say what I'm actually thinking. My wife is so good at this. She works in customer service, and she, people yell at her all day long, and she's just like, oh, I, thank you for yelling at me like that. She, she keeps this really nice tone, and does like she's just amazing. I'm terrible at it, right? As soon as somebody starts saying something I don't agree with, I start going, 
Like I, my, my posture shows, like I, I wanna get the word in, I wanna say the thing, I wanna fight, I wanna argue, I'm feisty that way. But Jesus begins this kind of model of what the Beatitudes look like. And we've been kind of showing you guys this model of how this builds. These are almost like building blocks that build on one another. And so he starts with this idea of blessed are the poor in spirit. It's the way of humility. And there's an acknowledgement that we need a savior. And none of the rest of this works if we don't acknowledge first that we're in need of a savior to rescue us. Then he moves on to blessed are those who mourn. And he talks about we need to mourn not just over what's going on in the hearts of others, but mourn over actually what's happening in us. And he teaches us the way of repentance. And so we embrace a new way, and then in Matthew 5, 5, where we are today, he teaches us the way of submissiveness and this idea that we give our lives away. Here's what I know about the church. If we did a seminar on worship, a bunch of people would show up. If we did a seminar on prayer, a bunch of people would show up. If we did a seminar on the gifts of the Spirit, a bunch of people would show up. If we did a seminar on serving and missions, a bunch of people would show up. You know what no one would show up to? A seminar on submissiveness. It would be me and my children. I'd make them come. <laughs> like, that would be it. That would be the only people in the room for that seminar. I've actually led that seminar at home a, a, a few times. <laughs> Matthew 5, 5 says this. It says, blessed are the meek. Listen to the promise. This is crazy because we think that the strong are the ones that get the world, and it says this, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the world. So, so I want to give us three kind of things to think about when we think about meekness and three kind of definitions that will help frame this conversation for us. The first is that meekness teaches us wisdom. Um, submissiveness sounds awful, but it's actually something that can actually give us life. Because submission always comes before growth. In order for me to grow, I first have to acknowledge that I need to grow. And so if I'm not submissive enough, if I'm not meek enough to receive from anybody else or to learn from anybody else or to grow from anybody else or to grow in any way, then I'm never going to end up growing. I'm never gonna learn, I'm never gonna develop, I'm never gonna grow into anything. So meekness teaches me that I give my life away and because I do that, it means I don't hold anything tightly. It means that I could be wrong. It means that I examine my motives and motivations and I acknowledge that there are so many times when I get it wrong and I don't know that I'm wrong. One of the core values for us at Grace Marietta is this idea of we hear the whisper. It's this idea of co-discernment. It's that we listen to the spirit of the living God, but we do it together. We don't work in a culture or work in a church where one person hears from Jesus and tells everybody else what Jesus is saying and everybody else listens. We work in a community and in a family where all of us are listening to the spirit of the Lord and all of us are saying, this is what I sense the Lord is doing. It's my favorite thing that we do before church every single Sunday. So before anyone gathers in this room, the worship team and the prayer team gather in this space and for about a half hour every single Sunday, all we do is pray and seek the Lord and ask the Lord, Lord, what do you wanna do today? What's on your heart for our people? How are you moving? How are you working? And we all corporately together co-discern what God is doing. But one of my biggest fears right now being a pastor, particularly with young people, is that right now, I think young people want an amazing preacher to listen to, but
but they don't want a shepherd to actually submit to. We would rather take a bunch of notes that we can put on Twitter than have somebody actually shepherd us because we don't want to submit. I would suggest it's because we're prideful. I would suggest that that's in me as well as it is in everybody else, that I believe that I'm right. I believe that I've figured it out. I've already made up my mind on so many different things. And so when a pastor stands up in front of me and starts preaching some kind of message to the whole church, I'm like, oh yes, the whole church needs to hear this. Praise God, amen, pastor, good work. But when the pastor sits down with coffee with me and says, hey, you need to hear this. You need to grow in this area. I need to challenge you in this specific thing. We say, I'm leaving that church and I'm going to the one down the street. I've seen it repeat over and over and over again, not in other places, right here. We want an amazing sermon that stirs our heart, that makes us laugh, that gives us some quotables for the week. But what we don't want is someone or something to submit to. And I'm not talking about submitting to me. I'm talking about submitting to Jesus. I'm talking about submitting and surrendering to his plans for your life and his hopes for your life. But, but, but the challenge is we want a teacher and we don't want a shepherd. And, and you can't disciple someone that doesn't want to be shepherded. I can't tell you guys how many times someone has come to me and said, Pastor, I want you to disciple me. I want you to walk beside me. I want to meet with you weekly. I want to gather with you. I want to talk about all of these different things. And I say to them, I'm happy to do that. But all, this is what I say to almost everybody who asks me that question. I can only shepherd you to the amount that you are humble enough to be shepherded. I cannot disciple you if you've already made up your mind about everything. I can't teach you or train you if you don't want to be taught or trained. And so the way that I operate with so many different people is I will shepherd you in the way that you want to be shepherded. If you want to be shepherded, I will pour out all that I have. But if you don't want that, I'll let you stay where you are. Jesus did the same thing. He constantly invited people to, into his inner circle. The rich young ruler came to him. Remember this? And Jesus said, I want you to give away all that you have to the poor. Richard Gilbert was like, teacher, you're amazing. You're incredible. I love what I'm hearing from you. I love the miracles. I love the sermons. I love all of these things. And Jesus says, okay, I want to shepherd you. Go sell all you have. And he's like, no, I can't do that. And so he didn't come into the inner circle. The invitation of the rich young ruler, whose name we don't know, Jeff, right? Jeff could have been with the 12. You know that. Right? He could have been with the other disciples. He could have not been known as the rich young ruler. We could have known him as Charlie. Right? Whatever that is, we don't even know his name because he refused to be shepherded. Jesus is constantly teaching us this idea of shepherding, and meekness teaches us that we don't know it all, and that there's others that are worth following, surrendering to, submitting to, learning from. When we believe that we've figured out all the answers we're on a path to fall. Scripture says that God actually opposes the proud. Like you, I, like put that in, in perspective. It's not like God's a little unhappy when you're prideful. It's not God gets a little irritated when you're prideful. It says this, he opposes 
Like he stands against the proud. John chapter 10 is this amazing picture of shepherding. And I wanna read it to you from the message. I don't use the message very often, but I liked the message for this. Here's what it says. It says, let me set before you this as plainly as I can. If a person climbs over or through a fence to a sheep pen, instead of going through the gate, you know that he's up to no good. He's a sheep rustler. And the shepherd walks right up to the gate and the gatekeeper opens the gate to him and the sheep recognize his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he gets them all out, he leads them and they follow because they're familiar with the voice of the shepherd. They won't follow a stranger's voice, but they will scatter because they aren't used to the sound of it. This is where we have this idea of when we are followers of God, we learn to know his voice. We learn to hear the whisper. We learn to recognize that when the shepherd speaks, we follow. Sheep are traditionally stupid animals. Like, I, I don't have a lot of experience with sheep. I'm not, I, I, I do very little shepherding with sheep uh, in my life. I, I'm a city boy. I live in West Cobb. I don't, uh, there's not a lot of sheep around me. None of my neighbors have them. I don't wrangle them or, or rustle them or those, whatever it is. I don't leave the 99 to go find one of them. I, I don't do any of those things, but, but, but there's this model of the sheep don't know what they're doing, and they need somebody to guide them. It goes on. It says, Jesus told this simple story, but they had no idea what he was talking about. So he tried again. Let me make it explicit. He said, I am the gate for the sheep. Uh, here's the model of this. Um, imagine on this rug, uh, this is where I've got my four sheep for the day, and it's nighttime, and the sheep are going to go to bed at night. I don't know if they lay down, I don't know how long sheep sleep, I don't know anything about sheep, but apparently there's a point where they go to bed, or you shut it down. And so you're working the fields, you're giving them food, you're taking them to different places to pasture and, and all these different things, and then at night, you gather them in a pen, and what they would do is they would build these rocks up around the pen so that the sheep can't jump over it, but they would create it in a horseshoe-type shape. Right, uh, And so the, 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 there was a space on the front end that was open. And in that space, that's where the shepherd would sleep. So the shepherd, there's rocks built up all over the place. The shepherd would actually lay down like this on the front of the gate so that the sheep can't get out of the gate and nothing can get into the gate without encountering the shepherd. Does that make sense? And so Jesus is saying, I am the gate. I'm the gate, I'm protecting you from wolves. I'm protecting you from, from making mistakes. I'm trying to walk with you and love you and care for you in such a way that I'm looking out for you and I'm trying to help you navigate. It says, all those who are up to no good, sheep rustlers, every one of them, but the sheep didn't listen to them for I am the gate. Anyone who goes through me will be cared for, will freely go in and out and find pasture. A thief is only there to steal, kill, and destroy and I came so they might have real eternal life more and better than they ever dreamed of. He goes on and on and says, I am the good shepherd. But here's the thing. We can't be shepherded from Jesus if we won't ever put ourselves in the pen. If we don't ever submit ourselves and surrender ourselves and become humble enough to be shepherded, we're not going to be shepherded. We'll be existing outside the fold, running and doing our own thing. Being a follower of Jesus means we actually submit to his word and his way. And let me break this down. This is hard. Because sometimes we don't want to. Young people, 
Sometimes we do what we don't want to do. I was hanging out yesterday, uh, and, and we were at a restaurant, and there was this poor father that was there by himself with like seven kids under the age of seven. Uh, and, and anytime I see that, I have instant empathy because I feel like I've been there. Um, my kids are grown, they're older now, I've got a college and a 17-year-old and a 12-year-old, and so they don't typically eat things out of the garbage anymore or, or those kinds of things. But all this guy did the whole time was wrangle children like sheep. And I was just watching. So at one point, one of the kids tried to walk back behind the counter where all the cooking was going on at the, at the restaurant. He was just like, let's check out what's happening here, right? And just trying to walk back there. No idea that he shouldn't do it, just walking back there where all the hot ovens are and all that kind of stuff and people are running back and forth. Um, one of the children kept walking to other people's tables and trying to take food off of their plates, which was awesome. I gave him one of my fries. Uh, they, just going to different spots, just like I'm going to take something over here, I'm going to grab something over here, just kind of like, I, I don't know, no stranger danger right here. It was all stranger has French fries. Uh, it was, was what it was. And just going from spot to spot. One of the workers came and kind of took the trash out of the bin and started to take it out, and then the bin was empty, and I saw it, and there was a kid who was like, I know where I'm going right now. I'm going directly into that bin where the trash just was, and I'm going to play hide-and-seek there. And I watched him go in there, and the dad didn't see it, and I was like, Dad, he's, he's in there. He, he's, he's in there. And I kind of just like, hey, bud, let's go out. <laughs> like Trying not to parent somebody else's child, but also trying to help this poor dad out. Uh, here's, here's the thing. When you're, when, you're, when you're young and when you don't have wisdom, you don't see danger. I say this to my kids all the time. They're teenagers now, and they think they know everything, but there's still things that they don't see that I see. There's still ways that I understand that they don't understand yet. I keep telling them, your brain isn't even fully formed yet. Stop arguing with me. It's science. When, when, when we're kids, listen, when we're kids, we're forced to be shepherded. When we become adults, we choose to be shepherded. And I think the American church would grow dramatically if there was a group of people who just said, I'm surrendering myself to be shepherded. I'm ready to be discipled. There's things that I don't know that I wanna know. There's things that I wanna learn and wanna grow in. And I wanna surrender and submit myself to investing the time into that, investing my heart space into that, and actually trying to listen to someone who has a path that they can set before him. And so the first question I wanna ask for us today is are we meek enough to be shepherded? In 2021, when everybody's got their political opinions figured out, when everybody knows exactly what they believe about masks and vaccinations, when everybody has everything, we've been so discipled by our news channels that we don't even care what the Bible says anymore. Are we willing to submit and surrender and say, wait a minute, maybe I don't know everything that I think I know. Maybe I need to be shepherded in this way. Maybe I have been part of the problem and I need to mourn, 
Maybe I need to be poor in spirit enough to acknowledge that I need a savior in this area of my life and I need to be meek enough to acknowledge that I need to be shepherded. The second thing is that meekness teaches us humility. Meekness always feels like weakness. It feels like conceding victory because we wanna be certain, we wanna be aggressive, we wanna be tough, but meekness is, is, is a true estimation of self. I love that, it's the definition of meekness. A true, defini- a true understanding of self, it's a true view of yourself. And, and here's the thing for me, I am fine, I am 100% fine being meek before the Almighty God, are you with me? When I think about God's holiness in comparison to my holiness, I am 100% capable of sitting before him and saying, I am a worm, I am the greatest of all sinners, I am broken, I am hurt, I am so, I fall short in so many different ways. I am great with acknowledging my sin before our risen Savior and before our God in heaven. You know where I'm terrible at acknowledging it is when somebody else says those things about me. I'm great acknowledging my failures, my brokenness, my weaknesses, all of those things before the living God. I'm terrible at acknowledging those things in front of you guys. So the moment that one of you says, Ben, you are the greatest of sinners, you know what I do? I buff up, and I'm like, oh, no, I'm not. Do you know how hard I work this week? Do you know how many times I've done this? Do you know, like, you don't know me, right? We are great acknowledging our poverty of spirit in front of the living God. We're terrible at acknowledging it with each other. And because of it, we don't grow. Because we don't acknowledge our own hurts and our own pains. We don't acknowledge our own sins and our own brokenness. We don't acknowledge that maybe I don't always know the right answer or the right way. And so we do all of these things and we can't get progress because... We haven't acknowledged our, our meekness. I, I have a spiritual director that I've met with for the last year and a half. He's been like water in the desert for me. And I meet with him twice a, twice a month. Uh, he's in Colorado. He lives in the mountains. He's like a hermit. Uh, and he's got a big bushy beard and he just hangs out with Jesus. He's like one of the monks that just sits with Jesus all day and he's smart. And I sit and I pray with him and I talk to him and I've submitted myself to listen to him and pay attention to my life and to look at what's going on beneath the surface of my life. And I've done all of this because pastoring over the last two years has been hell. It's been the worst experience of my entire life. And so I've submitted myself because I wanna grow, because I wanna love. I don't wanna become so hard-hearted to everybody yelling at me about everything that I become hard-hearted in my spirit and that I lose something. I I wanna be able to keep a soft heart and have thick skin and I don't know how to do that all the time and I wanna be able to acknowledge that I don't ever have everything figured out and I don't always know the answers and I've never pastored through a global pandemic before and I don't know what the answers are. But one of the things, one of his assignments was he said, I want you to to write out 10 things that look like spiritual maturity for you in this next season. It's an assignment I want to invite all of you into. What are 10 things in your life that look like meekness, submission, and and, and spiritual growth to you? I I want to read you mine. Uh, Here's what mine are, and and don't judge me. When I can enter into conflict admit I was wrong, and not create a self-justifying story. When I can be silent and go slow when I desperately want things to move faster. When I can hear a critique of me or my ministry and not attach my identity to it in any way. When I can let go of a moment where I wasn't at my best 
and trust that God's grace, trust in God's grace versus obsessively thinking about it. When I can be fully present where I am today with no need to stress about the future, but be here and leave tomorrow for itself. When I can find truth and grace on both sides of an issue or an argument. When I 100% know that I am right and I have no desire to prove that to anyone. When I can completely submit and surrender to someone else's leadership and trust them and God in the process knowing I don't have to lead everything. When I can be quiet when I want to speak, making room for other voices and knowing that not everything that's in my heart needs to be spoken. When I can encourage what God is doing in others and urge them on without any expectation of them doing the same for me. Those are 10 things that I wrote out. I spent a lot of time in my journal of just paying attention. And so I've been looking at that checklist every week and it's super discouraging because I fail all the time in so many of those. But, but there's a way that we can enter into this idea of meekness and discipleship and all these things where we just are like, I'm going to be nicer. I'm not going to post that on social media. I'm going to not argue with so-and-so. I want you to get really specific in a list like that and say, what are the things, what are your practices that help you grow in meekness? And so this week, here's my encouragement. Get with Jesus. Get with a friend that you trust. Get in silence. Get in a quiet space and make your own list. It doesn't have to be 10 things. Maybe it's three things. Maybe it's one thing. What's the thing that I want to do this because this is what spiritual maturity looks like for me? And write those out and pay attention to them. The last thing is that meekness teaches us countercultural winning. Uh, we have a ruthless methodology of winning in our culture. You know what I hate the most? Soccer. I'm a season ticket holder for Atlanta United, and so I go to all the games, and I love soccer. Next weekend, I'm going to watch the U.S. team play in Nashville. I love the game of soccer. You know what I hate the most is when it's a tie. I think it's the stupidest thing that any sport has ever decided, ever. You, if you pay money to go to a game and you leave and there's a tie, it is the worst feeling in the world. I would rather we lose. I'm not kidding. It drives me absolutely crazy. My wife tells me I'm in a bad mood when I go to a game and they tie. Because I'm like, this didn't get resolved. We didn't sort it out. Like, do penalty kicks or do a push-up contest. Do something. Like, somebody decide who won that dang game because somebody has to be able to say, I won, and somebody else has to be able to say, I lost. This is the ruthless way of our world. We all prefer to be able to define this is the winners and these are the losers and I know where I stand and I know where I am. It's how we do our, our, our American school system. We start kids in first grade by giving them sad faces versus happy faces. All right? Some of you got a sad face today. You are the losers. Some of you got a happy face today. You are the winners because you didn't eat Play-Doh. We don't give them straight, like non-expression faces. That's not an option. It's winners or losers. We start at a very young age, right? I've coached youth sports my entire life. You would not believe the intensity at a six-year-old basketball game. Like, I just want to say to every parent, your child is not going to play in the NBA. In all likelihood, your child will never even play high school sports in any way. Stop it. All right? Knock it off. 
We, but we want, we want this idea of a win, and, and, and in this idea of, of meekness, we have to learn this idea of mutuality. The kingdom is all about mutuality. Because the way that we operate is we've got to negotiate, and I've got to figure out a way to out-negotiate you so that I get a win for me. Uh, I love buying used cars. I'm really good at it. I am good with my words, guys. And I do my work. So every single week, I study the Word of God, and I come up here, and I present something. And, and I do the same thing when I buy a used car. I find out all the data on the car that I want to buy. I find out what repairs have been made, what, what's due. I find out how much it costs in all the different places. I have my packet. I have like a folder. I come in like, I, I should wear a suit. Like I come in ready to buy and I win every time. I get them to lower the price and lower the price, lower the price and I end up getting amazing deals on cars and then I, sometimes I resell them and end up making money in the long run. I love this whole negotiation thing but I love it because I wanna win. So the last car I bought it was, is my favorite car I've ever owned. I was so excited to get it. It's my dream car. My wife, said, my wife said, hey, you've been working two jobs for seven years. It's time for you to get a car that you want. I had never driven a car that I actually wanted. And so I started research. I just found out all the details. I found out the car I want. I found the exact one I want. It had hardly any miles on it. It was an older model. And I, I walked in there with all my papers and all my details. And I started research. And I got him to come down a little bit, but I didn't get him to come down hardly at all. And I bought the car anyway. And I drove off with the car that I've always wanted, feeling completely angry and frustrated. And my wife said, why are you unhappy? And I was like, because I didn't win. Because I wanted him to come down another $3,000 and I couldn't get him to. This is how we operate in the world. We've always got to win. And because of that, we don't understand mutuality. We don't understand this idea that we are one body, that we are united together, that we were all created in the image of the creator and that we are all his sons and daughters. And because of that, we're looking for everybody to win. And so the true sense of Christian dignity and pride and honor is the fact that I lay down my rights and my preferences for others so that they can have theirs. We don't win by fighting for our rights. We win by laying them down. We win with mutuality. We win by saying we're tied to one another, we're connected relationally, and the way that we, we get through this is not pride of saying, I've gotta win and you've gotta lose in every situation. In our workplaces, in our arguments, on social media, in every area of our life. I don't, this, it, this, my day doesn't end with me winning or losing, it just ends with how I treated other people. Uh, I love this. Rudolf Steer says this. He says, self-renunciation is the path to world domination. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. I guess you guys didn't. Uh, I, I, I love that idea. Like the way that we as followers of Christ take over the world is we renounce ourselves. Jesus said, I lay down my life for my friends. Paul said, I'm always being given over to death so that others might live. We're in this constant posture of dying to self. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 9. I didn't even know this was here until this week. I, I learned this this week. 
Romans 9, 1 through 4. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Listen to this. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Paul is saying he's willing to trade in his salvation to rescue his brothers and sisters. I will lay down everything so that I can lift up somebody else. Romans 12, 18 says, if it's possible, as far as it is to as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And so we think we have this narrative in our head that meekness actually gets us nowhere. That being gentle, that being kind, that doing the right thing actually doesn't get us progress. And can I just say, if we're measuring ourselves by the world's standards, you're probably right. Like, it grieves me. It hurts me. How often I see good, kind, loving, wonderful people who have made the right choice over and over and over again in their life still suffer. I hate it. I wish it was a different way. The scripture says, in this world, we will have trouble. But take heart because I've overcome this world. And I want you to know that the world's standards of winning and losing is not the kingdom's standards of winning and losing. And when we lay down our lives for everyone, when we lay down our lives for our friends, when we lay down our preferences and our hopes and we're meek and we're gentle and we're kind and we make space for others to win, we win in the kingdom. Uh, I've been a pastor for now 26 years. And in those 26 years, I look at all the different places where I've pastored. I was a pastor in Indiana for a while. I was a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky for a while. I've been a pastor here now for five years. And in each of those spaces, I can look and I can say, there's a group of people that are different because of the ministry that we did there. It's not a huge group, right? We're not talking about thousands and thousands of people. I'm talking about people I know by name who email me and who tell me happy birthday when it's my birthday and who I'm in contact with and who I love. And I don't know. I, I'm 46. I want to keep doing this pastoring thing for a long time. So I, I hope I can do this for a really long time. And in the end of it, like when it's all over, I think that's all that's going to matter. I don't think it's really going to matter if we built some giant ministry and everybody came. I don't think it's going to matter if we were the cool church or the not cool church. I don't think it matters if we, I think it matters that when it's all said and done, I've got a group of relationships of people that I can say, something good happened there. And because of the sacrifice that we put in year after year in ministry, it was worth it because these people came to know Jesus because of it. And so for you, what's that web of relationships look like for you? We're the people that are going to say, I'm so grateful for you because they sacrificed in this way, because they loved in this way, because they gave of themselves in this way, and because they cared 
for me. So what do you need to move you towards mutuality? What do you need that moves you towards a space of understanding how to lay your life down? I would suggest that none of us can do that without the spirit of the living God. And so what we need is we need to be in the presence of Jesus. We need to be in the word. We need to be studying. We need to be praying. We need to be silent. We need to be quiet. We learn to need, to, need to know what our triggers are and our impulses are, and we need to lean kind of the opposite way of all of those things. But I don't know about you guys. I think this actually works. I think there was a bunch of people that were sitting on that mountaintop who at first Jesus irritated them, and then the longer he started to teach, they started to say, wait a minute. Maybe there's something to this. Maybe this isn't as crazy and as weird as I thought it was. Maybe this is true. And maybe this is good. And I will just say this. The Sermon on the Mount seems to be doing very well for itself. (laughs) I have preached every Sunday for 26 years. No one can remember a single sermon I've ever preached. (laughs) <laughs> you might be able to remember portions of it or a part of it or something from it, but, but nobody's ever written it down and said, you know what, you know, let's just pass this on to, let's put it in every hotel. <laughs> Nobody has taken a sermon of mine and said, well, you know what we need to do, put this in every Motel 6. That's what we need to do, right? The reason the Sermon on the Mount stands is because it's true and it's good and it's beautiful and there's something about the way of emptying ourselves and filling ourselves with the Holy Spirit that changes everything. And so my hope today as I was preparing for this is that this would be really challenging for us. It challenges me. This really, cha- I don't know about you guys, but this is more challenging than all the other Beatitudes for me. Because I don't want to be meek. I want to be strong. I don't want to lose. I want to win. I don't want to lay down my preferences. I want to get what I want. And Jesus is teaching me there's a better way. So we're gonna move into a time of worship. The band's gonna come up and we're gonna kind of sing a song in response to this. Uh, Communion is set up all around the room. There's tables on the outside where you can grab the elements and take those as we're worshiping together. And then our prayer team's gonna be in the back. And and maybe today, um, maybe today, you just need to go to the prayer team and just need to say, I need to repent because I've not been living in meekness. And I just need somebody to pray with me. We think that sounds so terrible and it's so awful to admit that we've done the wrong thing or gone the wrong way, but scripture teaches us that repentance is actually the best thing that can ever happen to us. Repentance is how I get on the same page with Jesus. Repentance is how I grow. Repentance is how I'm transformed. Repentance is actually the way of every Christ follower. And so it's no big deal for us to say, I got it wrong, because we know that we're going to get it wrong. And the way forward is grace and mercy and love and community. So Heavenly Father, I just pray right now that you would do the work that I can't do, and that your spirit would move and work in this place. I pray that you would search our hearts and that you would know us. And I pray that you would teach each of us to lay down our lives. That you would teach each of us to seek the path that is so far less traveled in our world of love and of gentleness and of kindness. 
And Lord, we do trust you that in the end, we win. We may not win by the world's standards or by the world's ways, but by the kingdom ways. I, we just trust you in, in saying that we win and that the sacrifice is worth it and the hurts are worth it and hardship is worth it and the difficulty is worth it and all of those things pale in comparison before eternity with you. And so, Lord, I ask you to give us the spirit of victors and of champions again. And I pray that we would know how to walk in your authority and in your power and in your strength, but we would also learn to walk in your grace and in your kindness and in your gentleness and in your wisdom. So Holy Spirit, breathe on this place and teach us a new way. It's in Jesus' name we pray.